From the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth. A worldly story told by a group of travellers. A history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of Brisbane's four, 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 triple, triple, triple Z. Hello and welcome to part six in the series Radio and Colour, 40 Years of 4ZZZ. I'm Jay Edwards and I'll be your host for this show. Today we recount political history and listen to the stories of people who made this history in what is to be our last episode about the 1970s. We explore the idea of the butterfly effect, how one small change can have far-reaching effects. We ask the question, how do political changes in one country change the face of societies far away? We start far from our Australian home in Iran. In the 1970s, a conservative revolution changed the face of Iran, the Middle East, and societies as far removed from that region as Australia. In the hour ahead, we take a close look at the policy change that allowed immigration to bloom. We're talking about the end of the White Australia policy. We will hear the stories of Indo-Chinese refugees who learned to call Brisbane home after escaping the Khmer Rouge, and we'll hear from the children of those who made the perilous journey from Vietnam to Australia in small fishing boats. And finally today, language, the stuff that politics is made of. We listen closely to the way people talked about the world in the 70s and how changes in the spoken word led to changes in law. We talk politics with Lindy Morrison from The Go-Betweens and bring you the best bits from an essay that is likely to give you a totally new perspective on the idea of Australia as a lucky country. But first, we take you to the Middle East and a society undergoing rapid change. What you're about to hear is a recording from Richard Kapuczynski's Shah of Shahs you will hear from a monument wrecker by the name of Gulam. And afterwards, we will welcome into the studio our guest, Mohsen Soldust, which means peace lover. He was born in Iran in 1991, and having graduated with a bachelor's in English translation, he was hired by the UNHCR to work at the border between Iran and Afghanistan in 2004. A reporter from the Tehran newspaper Kayan interviewed a man who wrecks monuments to the Shah. You've won a certain popularity in your neighborhood, Golam, as a man who pulls down monuments. You're even regarded as a sort of veteran in the field. That's right. The first pulled down monuments in the time of the old Shah, that is the father of Muhammad Raza, when he abdicated in 41. I remember that great joy there was in the city when news got around the old Shah has stepped down. Everybody rushed out to smash his monuments. I was just a young boy then, but I helped my father and the neighbors pull down the monument that Raza Khan had set up to himself in our neighborhood. I could say that that was my baptism of fire. And were you persecuted for it? Not on that time. Do you remember 53? Of course I remember. Wasn't that the most important year when democracy ended and the regime began? In any case, I recall the radio saying that the Shah had escaped to Europe. When the people heard that, they went out into the street and started pulling down the monuments. And I have to say that the young Shah had been putting up monuments to himself and his father from the beginning. So over the year, a lot of accumulated that needed pulling down. My father was not longer alive then, but I was grown up, and for the first time, I brought them down on my own. So did you destroy all of his monuments? Yes, every last one. By the time the Shah came back, there wasn't a Pahlavi monument left. 
but he started right back in putting up monuments to himself and his father. Does that mean that you would pull down, he would set up, then you would pull down what he had set up, and it kept going on like this? That's right. Many times we nearly threw in towel. If we pulled one down, he set up three. If we pulled down three, he set up ten. There was no end in sight. And when was the next time, after 53, that you wrecked them again? We intended to go to work in 63 when the rebellion broke out after the Shah imprisoned Imam Khomeini, but instead the Shah began such a massacre that far from pulling down monuments, we had to hide our horses. Am I to understand you had special horses for the job? Yes, indeed, we hid our stout sizal rope with a rope sailor at the bazaar. It was no joke. If the police had picked up our trial, we would have gone to the wall. We had everything prepared for the right moment, all thought out and practiced during the last revolution. I mean in 79, all those disasters happened because a lot of amateurs were knocking down monuments and there were accidents when they pulled the statues onto their own heads. It's not easy to pull down monuments. It takes experience, expertise. You have to know what they are made of, how much they weigh, how high they are, whether they are welded together or sunk in cement, whether where to hook the line on, which way to pull, and how to smash them once they are down. We were already working at pulling it down each time they set up a new monument to the Shah. That was the best chance to get a good look and see how it was built, whether the figure was hollow or solid, and most important, how it was attached to the pedestal and how it was reinforced. It must have taken up a lot of your time. Right. More and more monuments were going up in the last few years everywhere. In the squares, in the streets, in the stations, by the road and besides. There were others setting up monuments as well. Whoever wanted to get a jump on the competition for a good contract hired to be the first one to pull up a monument. That's why a lot of them were built cheaply and when the time came, they were easy to bring down. But I have to admit, there were times when I doubted we would get them all. There were hundreds of them, but we weren't afraid to work up a sweat. My hands were all blisters from the ropes. So, Ghulam, you have such an interesting line of work. It wasn't work. It was duty. I am very proud to have been a wrecker of the Shah's monuments. I think that everyone who took part is proud to have done so. What we did is plan for all to see all the pedestals are empty and the figures of the Shahs have either been smashed or are lying in backyard somewhere. و بر این ایمان پایدار ماندند حاضر نشدند بنده غیر خدا شوند و حکومت غیر خدا پذیرند فرشتگان رحمت بر آنها نازل شوند و مجده دهند که دیگر هیچ ترسی و حزن و اندوهی از گذشته خیش نداری و شما را به همان بهشتی که انبیا وعده دادند In the interview, Ghulam talks about pulling down monuments. Can you explain, were they two revolutions? Basically, the first one was not referring to a revolution. It actually pointed to the time where the father of Muhammad Reza Shah was actually ruling the country. So it was before 1942 when the father of the Shah was ruling the country. And when he was actually 
probably kicked out of the country. So people thought that there is going to be a revolution because the few years after there was this prime minister who was democratically elected in the country, Dr. Mossadegh. So in the meantime, people were pretty much unhappy with him. Then we had a coup in 1952, and then the prime minister was again toppled. So we had Mohammad Reza was installed uh, basically by the support of the Britain U.S. So how did the Shah actually use to run the politics and economics of Iran? I'm talking about the second Shah. And was was it a good thing that his term came to an end? In the first decade of his ruling from 1942 to 1952, he had some sort of, let's say, uh, political open space for everyone so that everybody could participate. Mm -hmm. But after a while, it became a little bit authoritarian to the extent that there were no other political parties other than what he wanted to be. So there were some other reforms that he did. He did a lot of socioeconomic reforms. He actually had some land reforms, giving some lands, farmlands to farmers, giving shares of the factories uh, to workers. And he had some programs to, for example, eradicate illiteracy in the country. He was trying hard to modernize the country, but some analysts say that this pace of modernization of Iran was too fast that people could not catch up with him. On the other hand, he was not giving any political freedom to people. So uh, despite there were a lot of like socioeconomic freedoms for people, and they relatively had some, let's say, economic welfare in the country, but there was no political freedom. That's why people actually started to rise up against him. In that stage, Iran was pretty much rich, mm-hmm. particularly in 1970s, because the Shah of Iran was chairing OPEC, the group of oil-producing countries. And he was actually deciding the price of oil, and he had a very big oil revenue in the country. So building the statues was not very expensive. and whether it was misuse of public funds or not. The thing that he was probably aiming to do was to make an icon of himself. That's why he was putting up the statues. It is pretty much common if you travel to Iran, you see there are a lot of statues of poets or like historical figures of the country. He was also thinking of himself as somebody who is reviving that Persian Empire, the glory of the Persian Empire. So he was trying to make statues of himself to show off his power not only to his own people, but also to like external powers or his patrons. I think if you ask people if they were happy with that or not at the time they were doing that, probably they were happy because when revolutions are taking place, people are so excited that they're not acting very rationally or reasonably. So they tear down whatever represents the previous regime. But after a few years, especially if there is some level of frustration among people or if they haven't, if they've got some unfulfilled achievements or goals. So they might probably resent what they did. And that's probably the unfortunate part of every revolution that when revolutions are taking place, people tear down everything in the country. There's a lot of demolition and destruction in the country. Mm. I could relate to that because I'm coming from Egypt myself. And now I know with the revolution coming in, a lot of people actually resented now that they actually took in. They rather prefer Hosni Mubarak to be in first place. Yeah. So <laughs> I know where you're coming from. So the ne- next question would lead us um, to punishment. So the, do you think those uh, people who were raking the monument, were they, ha- were they punished by the government? Or were they actually uh, doing it in the middle of the night so no one sees them? Uh, uh, the clips that I have seen mm-hmm. of those monuments being torn down, they actually happened in the daylight, so I don't think they did that in the dark. Uh, and as we just heard from Ghulam, he, he survived the first time. He tore down the statue of the father of Shah. So probably there was not a high price for them to pay <laughs> for what they're doing. I was actually born after the Islamic Revolution, after 1979 revolution, so what I'm saying is based on what I have read or the research papers, the documents or newspaper articles that I have read about the events.
Carolina Kaliaba speaking to Iranian scholar Mohsen Solust about life and revolution in Iran. We go now to events closer to home. At the same time the regime in Iran was falling apart, another kind of monument was being toppled in Australia. It's time now to hop on down and take a look at the ruins of the white Australia policy and the forces that broke it apart. Today, Australia is seen as a multicultural country, but it wasn't always like that. From the earliest day of the colony, non-European people were prevented from living and working in the country. This was formalised after Australia became independent from Britain in the form of the White Australia policy. John Piccini, who was asked to explain what this sinister-sounding policy was and how it came to an end. Stay tuned for a full triple set historical primer on the fine print of Australia's immigration policies. Read here by Pip Kelly. For more information about the history of your country's policies, consult your local historian. Practically ever since the invasion of Australia in 1788 and the establishment of a settled capitalist colonial society, Australia has sought to exclude unwanted immigration as well as exterminate the Indigenous residents of the land through policies of active violence, neglect or assimilation. During the gold rushes in the 1850s, the first forms of restriction were enacted against Chinese gold miners and various forms of restriction were practised by colonial authorities across the 19th century. Come Federation in 1901, Australians, workers and rulers were united in a desire to ensure that the benefits of this so-called working man's paradise remained available only to one race. So the Immigration Restriction Act was passed that year colloquially known as the White Australia Policy, which allowed government to decide who could arrive in this country via a variety of mechanisms, most famously the dictation test, where a potential immigrant would have to pass a test in English or any other European language. 
This was as airtight a guarantee as was possible and it ensured that Australia's official population remained 98% of English stock. Yet, the policy faced challenges even from its earliest days. The first was the problem of existing peoples of different races, largely Chinese, who had set up successful businesses across the country and so-called Kanaka South Sea Island labourers employed, often against their will, in the hyper-exploitive North Queensland sugar industry. These were either deported or slowly diminished through natural attrition. But with the deportation of the Kanakas, the rural economy was faced with a lack of cheap workers able to cope with the harsh North Queensland climate, something many white scientists at the time thought Englishmen would not endure. So a trickle of Italian and other Southern Europeans found their way to Australia, taking up this hard labour. This was only ever imagined by Australian authorities as a limited program, but the reality of World War II soon changed that. Populate or perish became the catch cry of the post-war era, with Australia's small population now seen as potentially making the nation an easy target for invasion. So the Chifley Labor government made the somewhat audacious move of officially allowing immigration from southern European countries, particularly refugees displaced by the war. The trickle became a flood with some 120,000 non-British immigrants soon arriving. The realities of increased immigration from the wider European region and global awareness and condemnation of Australia's immigration policies soon saw the legislation itself relaxed. The dictation test was abolished in 1958 as the Immigration Restriction Act was replaced by the current Migration Act. This act, however, still restricted migration from Asia, something only amended by the Holt government in 1966. Finally, the Whitlam government in the mid-1970s introduced no discrimination clauses into the Migration Act and ratified international agreements on race and immigration, officially ending the period of the white Australia policy. Practically, however, immigration by peoples of non-white heritage remained exceptionally rare Visas could still be withheld by the Immigration Department on flimsy pretexts that a person might damage social cohesion. of the late 1970s marked the first time that significant numbers of people of non-white descent were granted entry. As refugees fleeing the communist takeover in Vietnam, as well as the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, this needs to be read as both a humanitarian and deeply political exercise. The Fraser government saw welcoming these refugees as necessary, given our support for the fallen South Vietnamese government, as well as part of the propaganda war against global communism. In 1979, the Fraser government introduced a refugee quota for the first time, and over the next decade, some 100,000 refugees were settled in Australia from the Indo-Chinese area. Since then, recurring waves of refugees have arrived, as well as many more skilled workers, overseas students and assorted others, making Australia, in only a few decades, one of the world's most multicultural countries. Yet, as the recent advent of Reclaim Australia and more historical examples like Pauline Hanson demonstrate, a white Australia mentality continues to pervade some sections of the community. That was Brisbane's own documentary maker and curator Pip Kelly talking about the history of the white Australia policy. Research for this piece was done by Dr John Piccini, who is historians based 
here in Brisbane. The Indo-Chinese refugee crisis was the product of a series of communist victories in the former French colonies of Indochina in 1975. In Cambodia, then Kampuchea, Phnom Penh fell to the Khmer Rouge led by Pol Pot on April 17, 1975, after which the Khmer Rouge enacted a program of genocide, causing many to flee across the border to Thailand. The Vietnam War ended shortly afterwards, following the fall of Saigon at the end of April, and refugees from South Vietnam began to flee the victorious communist regime, taking to the seas in order to seek asylum in neighboring Southeast Asian countries. Then, in December 1975, the Patet Lao overthrew the royalist government in Laos and established the Laos People's Democratic Republic, causing hundreds of thousands of Laotians to flee to Thailand. Persecution, reprisal, forced expulsion and brutal genocide caused more than 3 million people to flee Vietnam, Cambodia and Laos over the next two decades. None of the neighbouring countries in Southeast Asia that became countries of first asylum to the majority of these refugees were signatories to the United Nations Refugee Convention and hence had no obligation to admit or resettle the refugees. But they agreed to accommodate they temporarily with the promise of assistance from and resettlement in Western countries primarily the USA, France, Canada and Australia. The governments of these states acknowledged both a general obligation to contribute to the relief efforts because of their commitment to international human rights and refugee instruments and a particular moral obligation due to their involvement in the conflict. As Fraser later explained, we had been fighting alongside these people. We had a moral obligation to help as many as possible come here as refugees. Not only did the crisis threaten the stability of the region to which Australia reluctantly belonged, but its proximity also meant that Australia found itself a country of first asylum for the first time. provided the first real taste of Australia's commitment to the human rights instruments and international refugee law that it had subscribed to. Next, we are going to listen to the personal accounts of Cambodian refugees who escaped the Khmer Rouge and settled in the southern suburb of Brisbane. Yes, apparently during the war, fleeing from Cambodia into the Thai border, my mum was actually first pregnant with my older sister. Akara Chen. As you get pregnant, you feel, you have cravings. You crave for different things. And one of my mother's craving at that time during the war was she craved oranges. Apparently, where she stayed, there weren't any oranges to be bought or found on trees. So mum and dad had to venture out into a different sector where they weren't supposed to and knowing they weren't allowed to go into this different sector dad forged a letter and um, which got him arrested so therefore he pretended that he didn't know how to read and write they were placed in this massive big house that was all covered with blood stains tall guards were standing outside their rooms watching over them and inside this room was just a bed that had no mattress or anything, just barbed wires and a long chain that extended from the roof. The room to them looked like it was like a killing room. But what they didn't think to find in this room 
was gold, jewels, and money from different type of countries that they never imagined. They were still locked in this room for about a week or so until words were taken around to their relatives so that they can come and rescue them. So in a sense, as my mother was craving oranges at the time of my older sister's birth, it nearly got her killed. If she wasn't given pardon then, for my family, it was a loss of three lives and me and my other siblings weren't, wouldn't be born. But as you talk about many lives and many children's been born during the war, as for myself, I was born as my mother was escaping Cambodia through the Thai border. I was born in Kawadang, a land where my mum and dad said we might stay there for a while until we, have ref- until we were granted a ticket to Australia. They didn't realise that they'll be caught. They were hoping that they wouldn't be seen. But in a sense of how badly punished they would be, people venturing out of their own border, in a sense, the first punishment would be death. If you didn't have anybody to back you up, or if you didn't speak the truth, or sometimes you weren't even given a chance to speak the truth. My mum was very pregnant on the way. I was actually, when we reached the Thai border in Kawadang, I was born about two months after, and apparently it was New Year. And so the Cambodian New Year and the Thai New Year is pretty much the same. We celebrate it very much the same for three days. And we didn't really have a house or anything like that to stay in that much. And the where we were staying, it was far away from the hospital. And since it was New Year, my dad, he went out because it was a good time to actually make money. So mum was actually home by herself. And then... When she went into labour, I guess how I'm more outspoken or I'm not really afraid of people in such, I was actually born out on the streets of uh, Kawidang. And um, it was early, around 2 o'clock in the morning, where people were still partying for New Year. And apparently three men helped my mum. It, it wasn't really my dad. one of her brother-in-law and two uncles. into Buddhism and one of the Buddhism's um, way of teaching is giving even if you don't have anything but the food that you make is always can be given. She didn't have very much skills as in literacy wise but through her cooking she was able to open up a small coffee shop and made coffee that she sold and made food that she sell and then she was able to bring up her, her kids that way. Another thing that she did was she um, she also cooked at the um, Khmer temple for the monks. She was the head cook in the temple and this big massive kitchen belongs to her that belo- that was in the temple. And then everybody was saying, oh, make sure you put, you know, things back in its place. It's Oop's kitchen. She likes to know where, where things are, where things go. 
And then if you if someone's looking for something and you can't find it, they'll be like, oh, just ask Ulf because she knows where she puts stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, that kitchen belongs to her. And, yeah, she stayed and worked for the monks and cooked for the monks. What you have just heard are some of the stories of Cambodian people who came to live in Australia after fleeing the Khmer Rouge. And now we are going to hear from the next generation. Giselle Nguyen's parent fled Vietnam and settled in Australia in 1980. She spoke to producer Ellie Freeman about how she came to know about this aspect of her family's history. So my name's Giselle. I'm 24. I live in Melbourne with my family from Sydney, and my parents came to Australia in 1980 as refugees from the Vietnam War. My dad was a medical officer in the South Vietnamese Army, and after the war ended, he spent a few years in a re-education camp. And then they fled in 1980 with a lot of other people by boat and went to Malaysia, where they met with delegates and came to Australia. What do you know of Australia's attitude to refugees when your parents came? I think that when they came, it was obviously during a big wave of refugees. And as far as I know, they were pretty warmly welcomed. My parents, when they came here, they met this elderly couple that helped them settle in, who they're still in touch with now. And that was through, I think, like a community program for people who wanted to help Vietnamese refugees because there were so many of them coming in. And my uncle, when he came here with them, he was 17, so he was still in high school. He stayed with a family who became kind of like a, a foster family that was also an Australian family. So I think the attitude then was probably warmer than it is now. And I mean, I'm sure that there was some not so nice stuff. But as far as I know, the experience of my parents coming here from like a really horrific kind of ordeal of them going through all that stuff as refugees, I think that when they came here, they felt very welcome. So what did your parents do once they became settled in Australia? My dad, like I said, he was a medical officer, but when he came here, his qualifications weren't valid anymore, so he had to start again. But he sat an exam and got through to like third year, but he had to do the rest of the degree again. And my mom is a piano teacher, so she went to the conservatorium in Sydney and got her degree. And so now my dad has a medical practice, which he's had since before I was born. And my mum teaches piano at home. So what does the aim of this policy mean in the context of Australian political thinking? Is the white Australia policy a triumph of toleration? Producer Carolina Kaliaba spoke with historian and essayist Humphrey McQueen to find out. The campaign against the white Australia policy had been running in the Australian left since the 1920s in the Communist Party and sections of the trade union movement were affiliated to the common turn through the Pan-Pacific Trade Union Congress, which meant that we were allied to the Chinese and the Japanese and the Asian trade unions. Now, this created great stir within the labour movement, the organisation, the very anti-communist ones like the AWU, used this to attack the communists and the left who were opposing it. There'd been an earlier opposition uh, around the Victorian Socialist Party and the British trade union leader Tom Mann was here and they knew, the opponents knew that Tom was opposed to the White Australia policy and they used to try and trap him into saying this because they'd noticed this would cut him off from a lot of the people he was trying to get socialist ideas across to. And Tom had uh, a very effective answer whenever they'd say, they'd put the question to him in these terms. Would you like your sister to marry a Chinaman? To which Tom would reply, I'd rather she married a Chinaman than a capitalist. And that, after a while, they stopped asking. And that was the kind of division that took place as to whether this was a racial question or whether it was a class question. Um, Now, that wasn't always kept to the fore, but underlying it, and through the 50s into the 60s, um, that began to affect a wider group in the community. There'd always been churches and others who'd been opposed to it for one reason or another. But from the 50s onwards, even the government made changes in 58. Um, the, the kind of white Australia ban 
wasn't there. You, you could get a permit to come and academics came and there were small groups. So the actual thing had, had, had really broken down. It had been reinforced in a way by the post-war migration scheme because in order to get the population to accept masses of European migrants, uh, Eastern Europeans and then Southern Europeans, in the Labor government in the late 40s were kind of boxed into a position of having to say, well, yes, but we're not going to bring Asians. This is not an attack on the white Australia policy. It's a much more complicated story than the, the simple versions of these things. But from the 50s onwards, there was a long campaign to educate people. And I think very successfully. It didn't rush in and say, we've got to abolish it in one night. We began to move people. People like Jim Cairns in the Labor Party were one of the first leaders in the ALP who dared to raise the question of whether we needed it anymore. Whitlam, who sometimes get the the praise for this, said nothing. Uh, it was only when it was all over, when he's in government, that they uh, actually that Whitlam comes out against it. He was never in favour of it, but he wasn't going to risk it politically in any sense whatsoever. Whereas Cairns, from really 1960 onwards, begins to question it and puts himself at some risk, even within the left and the ALP and Victoria and things. But this long campaign... Uh, student movement against um, white Australia was called Student Action uh, in the 1961 elections. Um, it slowly builds and moves uh, changes. Now, the Vietnam War, of course, in cuts, a, cuts across all of this and a whole other set of attitudes about Asia. First of all, there's terrible fear the Chinese are coming, the Chinese are coming. But then, as the war moves in the other direction, more and more people get less concerned about this fear that the, the Asians are all going to come. Uh, so that by the time we get to the end of the Vietnam War in 75, it's pretty much a settled question in Australia. The other two issues that run across that, of course, are Indonesia. And the fear of Indonesia, of course, was solved by slaughtering half a million or one million leftists. So the danger of a communist Indonesia had gone. Earlier than that, the, the fear that Papua New Guinea would be taken over by the Indonesian communists and you know this notion that, that Papua New Guinea was some kind of shield to keep people out of Australia, and this fantasy about what went on in the Second World War with Kokoda, that was overcome partly by the fact the Americans wouldn't back us in opposing the Dutch remnant in West Irian going across to the Indonesians. Um, Papua New Guinea got independence 40 years ago this year too. Um, so by then, all these bits on the chessboard had changed. Um, China was our major, you know, a major trading partner. We'd recognised China. You know, it was, a, it was a, a different kind of world to the one in which people had, had seen this much earlier. So it's out of that attitude that the White Australia policy, as a policy, as a restrictive immigration, is wound down.
might be wondering now how events in Iran and Cambodia affected things in Australia. You may have heard of the butterfly effect, the mysterious way one small event can cause big changes elsewhere. But it's not just a problem for Ashton Kutcher. Carolina looks at the effects revolution and war had on local politics. And we hear from Lindy Morrison, outspoken drummer from iconic Brisbane band The Go-Betweens. This is Radio in Colour, a special documentary series about the world since year Z, the blossoming of community radio in Brisbane. Attitudes and social problems that emerged in the 1970s have changed the way we see the world. We inhabit a world created by language, so it makes sense that the words that you and I use carry the echoes of such radical bids to reinvent reality. So what are some of the other buzzwords of the past? There's moratorium and dismissal, two easy ones, one to do with the recalling of Australian trips from Vietnam and the other one with sacking Whitlam. But what about terms like femocrats, those public servants whose job it was to understand how a social or economic policy may disadvantage women? or WASPs, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. In the next few minutes, we'll hear how these words help explain the burning political issues of the 1970s. In the minutes ahead, you will hear excerpts from an interview with Lindy Morrison recorded by ABC Local Radio in 2007. Lindy Morrison herself was a drummer of the Brisbane band The Go-Betweens, as well as an advocate and social worker. From 1973, Lindy worked with the Aboriginal and Islander Legal Service, where the house lawyer was future Labour Premier Wayne Goss. Morrison's account of radicalism and race relations in Brisbane in the 1970s are sobering, to say the least. Linda Morrison recounts travelling around Queensland with her then-partner, Dennis Walker, who was a land rights activist and the son of Aboriginal poet Ujuru Nonicol, also known as Kath Walker. Morrison recounts all sorts of things going wrong, including, for example, not being served at bars. And it wasn't only strangers who disapproved of a mixed-race couple. In an interview with Andrew Stafford for the book Pig City, Morrison talks about losing many of her white friends and being tainted by having an affair with an Aboriginal man. You can hear a longer version of this interview, as well as many more first-person accounts from Brisbane's youngsters from the 1970s, in a documentary called Pig City, which was produced by former 4ZZZ announcer and current Radio National producer Tony Collins. I suppose um, the first and most obvious was that um, we came off the back of the, uh, those of us who opposed the Vietnam War. So that, that, was, that was the first situation. The other issues were the black rights issues. So many people identified very strongly with the Indigenous rights movement and, uh, you know, we all got involved with that. There was the right to choice. There was the fact that homosexuality was banned and there was uranium mining was a major issue at that time. Anti-uranium mine demonstrations were fairly major. And then, of course, we lost the right to march. So when we lost the right to march and um, the uh, police felt it incumbent upon them to break up any gathering of more than three people, and that were lots and lots of gigs, then we were very directly affected. And uh, that, so by then we've, we've moved right through the 70s and I've just gone through what I see as the major kind of issues. But by, by then the police were just out of control. And, you know, as, as um, the Fitzgerald Inquiry f- found out, you know, we were running gigs in the valley and around uh, Petrie Terrace and Spring Hill and, and these were being closed down all the time and um, of course the police were involved in all sorts of corruption in those suburbs anyway. Genocide, the hypocrisy to us was real. 
Why your Jesus said you're supposed to give the oppressed a better deal. We say to you, yes, our land, I shall not steal. Oh, yeah, our land, you better heal. Well, your science and technology, hey, you can make a nuclear bomb. Development has increased its size to three million megatons. And if you think that's progress, I suggest your reasoning is unsound. Or you should have found that long ago, you best keep it in the ground. They taught us. Oh, black woman, thou shalt not steal. Hey, black man, thou shalt not steal. For me, the worst was being constantly paranoid, and, and frankly, I, I think I only got over that since about 1990. I stopped being um, frightened when I saw police. You know, in London, all those years in London and in Europe, I, I still had that fear of the police. That you know, it's only I've lost it recently you know in the last since 1990 living in Sydney I don't have that anymore and I don't have that fear you know I wonder how many people went slightly psychotic because they were justifiably paranoid when I was on the Aboriginal legal service at 10 o'clock at night every night myself with the Indigenous community leaders used to go out and try to stop the police picking up Aboriginal people coming out of the hotels because they'd take them in and put them in jail for drunkenness and the next morning I'd have to go to court, ask for bail, take them across to the legal service and the lawyer would then have to work towards stopping them being locked up or, or fined. So peak patrol was the first way to stop doing that so we'd go out on a peak patrol every night at 10 o'clock. The mainstream were very, very racist, you know, and if you were involved with Aboriginal people, you, you, you couldn't find a pub to drink in, you couldn't stay in hotels with Aboriginal people, you couldn't get a, a accommodation. Just hanging out with Aboriginal people was deemed to be, like, you know, a really bad thing to do, and, you know, you were obviously hanging out with, you know, criminals or, you know, I, I don't know, and it was just... Uh, Mainstream Queensland was very, very, very conservative. These were people who would bash homosexuals, remember, you know, who didn't think women should have the right to choose it. It was a really unpleasant... I've always said I'm not coming back here to live. I haven't forgotten and I haven't forgiven the attitudes that I saw that people promulgated, you know, in the 70s. As time and attitudes change, so too does slang. Boys in Blue was originally an irreverent way of describing policemen but has now become close to a form of endearment. Or take the case of Domino Effect, which was first used to describe the threat of growing communist influence and has now become a somewhat dead metaphor to reference other bogus fears. Stay tuned to hear from another expression that was popularised in the 1970s and is still used today, though with a far more positive tone than it was originally intended. As we wrap up this story today, we hear excerpts from Donald Horn's 1964 essay, The Lucky Country, which is read here by Alex Oliver from 4ZZZ's The Frog and Peach Show. Australia is a lucky country run mainly by second-rate people who share its luck. It lives on other people's ideas and although its ordinary people are adaptable, most of its leaders in all fields so lack curiosity about the events that surround them that they are often taken by surprise. But being laconic, they can take surprise in their stride. The very scepticism of Australians and their delight in improvisation have meant that so far Australia has scraped through. A nation more concerned with styles of life than with achievement has managed to achieve what may be the most evenly prosperous society in the world. It has done this in a social climate largely inimical to originality and the ambition, except in sport. According to the rules, Australia has not deserved its good fortune. It will be interesting to find out if the rules are wrong. Everywhere one goes in Australia amongst sensitive, intelligent people of the middle generation, once the conversation reaches a certain depth, one meets a sense of desperation. What is going to happen next? In the younger generation, it reaches a sense of outrage that public images of life should remain so freakishly irrelevant. 
Those who love their country, or in a more restrained Australian idiom, are worried about the life their children will lead, or are simply wondering what is going to happen next, none of these can imagine the future. There are plenty of good people around, but the conventions of the institutions by which power is reached stifle or repel them. One can only hope that events will liberate what is good and progressive in Australians, not perpetuate what is bad. That the relaxation and ease of life and the prosperity will grow, that the ideal of fraternalism will gradually extend to include the Asian races, as it appears to be doing among the young. So that ultimately, but perhaps not for some years, Australia's population problem will be solved in what may be the only way it can finally be solved, by large-scale Asian migration. The good qualities of Australians should be described and admired and brought into play. Their non-doctrinaire tolerance, their sense of pleasure, their sense of fair play, their interest in material things, their sense of family, their identity with nature and their sense of reserve, their adaptability when a way is shown, their fraternalism, their scepticism, their talent for improvisation, their courage and stoicism. These are great qualities that could constitute the beginnings of a great nation. This nation should be compelled to display its talents in a sense of reality. Many problems threaten the future of Australia, but we might have good luck. It's worth giving it a go. Can you work with that? Sorry, it's the best I can do. I have never... God, it's so wordy. What a wanker, honestly. And that was a highly selective account of political history in the 1970s. You've been hearing Episode 6 of Radio and Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Radio 4 Z. This show was produced by Carolina, Caliaba and Stephen Riggle. My name is Jay Edwards. Special thanks to our guest today, Boom Buchanan from the Radio 4EB Thai program, John Piccini, a historian with the University of Southern Queensland, Katrina Statz from the Department of Politics at Adelaide Uni, whose research into Fraser's refugee policy proved valuable for our peace on the end of the White Australia policy. Pip Kelly, a Brisbane-based curator with Jorgen Yam, and Kara Chen from the Brisbane-Cambodian community, and Mosin Soldus, our Iranian guest from UQ's Rotary Peace Centre, you can listen back to our stories on the 4ZZZ website, 4ZZZFM.org.au. The Radio and Colour 40 Years of 4ZZZ series was produced by the kind assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. Shall not steal. Hey.